Hello, everyone, and welcome to Before Amber, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lady Amy. Today, we're doing our first semi-international case. We are covering a couple who was traveling from their homeland in British Columbia, Canada, to Seattle, Washington, when they went missing. So let's get to it. Today, we're remembering Tanya Van Kylenborg, some say Kulenborg, and her boyfriend, Jay Cook. Tanya was born on November 28, 1968, to William or Bill and his wife, Mary Van Kylenborg. Tanya had an older brother, John, who she was actually very close to. It was just the two of them. Jay Cook was born on June 25, 1967, to Gordon and Liana Cook. At the time of the story, Tanya was just under 19. She was like two weeks away from turning 19 and Jay was 20. They were both described as very quiet, reserved kids. Jay enjoyed fishing and Tanya liked basketball and tennis. The couple hadn't been together very long, but everyone said they were really happy and really worked well together. They were young. They hadn't decided exactly what they wanted to do with life. They had their whole future ahead of them. So on November 18th, 1987, the couple set off from British Columbia, Canada, and they were going on an overnight trip to Seattle, Washington. They were taking Jay's dad's van. They were going to go pick up some parts for his furnace company. This is something that they had done before or Jay had done with his dad before. This was the first time that he was going to be going with Tanya. The plan was to drive down there, stay either in the parking lot or a parking lot near the facility, overnight in the van, just sleep there and pick up the parts and then head back the next day. Part of this trip involved taking a ferry. They took the Black Ball Ferry and we know that they made it on the ferry and that they got off the ferry because witnesses during the investigation did put them on the ferry and they all said that they seemed fine. There was no problems with the couple and they didn't see anyone unusual around the couple. So we know they made it that far. The ferry actually lands in a place called Port Angeles. On November 19th, Tanya was supposed to call home and let her dad know that they had made it, that they were getting ready to leave there. Just give them kind of a time frame. As the day went on, Bill didn't hear anything from her. And this really troubled him because she wasn't the kind not to check in. He reached out to John, her brother, who was away at college and was like, hey, have you heard from Tanya? This troubled John enough that he actually came home to figure out what was going on and where his sister was. She just never did this kind of thing. And Bill was extremely worried. Now John was really worried. They reached out to Jay's family, who was actually getting worried themselves because they hadn't heard from Jay and it wasn't his kind of thing to do either. They reached out to the authorities. Of course, the authorities were like, you know, they're adults. They can do what they want. But at the same time, they seemed to take it pretty serious and they did put out a bolo. This was the 1980s. There wasn't cell phone surveillance, even pagers at the time. So there was no way for anyone to try to reach out to the couple. They all had to just sit and wait until the couple reached out to them, which never happened. The families took things into their own hands. They went from British Columbia and followed the path that the kids were supposed to take down to Seattle, and they just had no signs of them. This was three different counties that they were going up and down. They went multiple times. They went to hotels. They went to parks, campgrounds, anywhere that the couple may have been just sleeping and lost track of time, or maybe where they might have taken a side tour and nothing was found. They even did an aerial search because it was a lot of rough terrain. There's a lot of forestry area and unfortunately nothing came out of the searches either. The American police did actually get involved as well. It's not exactly clear when they got involved, but because no one knew if they went missing in Canada or in the U.S., both agencies needed to be working together to see if they could find these teens. Like I said, the ferry arrived in Port Angeles and Port Angeles police, they said that they get dozens of reports of people missing from the ferry every year. That's not troubling at all now, is it? 
Anyways, moving on. Around 1130 on November 24th, six days after the teens went missing, Tanya's body was discovered. A passerby was walking their dog and they found her in a ditch. They called authorities immediately. She had been shot in the head. She was missing her pants and underwear. Her shirt had been pulled up. So it was obvious right away that there was probably a sex crime as part of this. She had no really other evidence near her. It appeared that she had been tossed out of the car. There was still blood. So she was tossed out of a moving vehicle. It was shortly after she had been shot. The only thing that they found besides blood in her was some zip ties. Her body was located near the town of Aljar in rural Skagit County, Washington, which was about 80 miles north northeast of Seattle. Though Tanya was found, Jade was nowhere to be found. He was nowhere in the area, no body, no living Jade, nothing. Many times when two people go missing, especially a couple and one body shows up, authorities immediately suspect the person that hasn't been found as a suspect or at least a person of interest. For some reason in this case, it did not seem that way. It seemed right away that they believed Jay was another victim and in danger, so they amped up their search for Jay. The following day on November 25th, so seven days after they went missing in a tavern in Bellingham, Washington. The van was discovered in the parking lot. Jay was not there. Bellingham is about 14 miles north of where Tanya was found and 90 miles north of Seattle, Washington. Although Jay wasn't there, detectives did find some other clues. Tanya's pants were inside the van. There was a handprint on the outside of the van. Also outside the van, they found her ID, the keys to the van, a disposable glove, some ammunition that matched the bullet that she was killed with, and some more zip ties. This location was really close to a bus stop, so authorities were really worried that the killer ditched the van and maybe got on a bus and could be literally anywhere by now. On November 26th, though the following day, something else happened. A crew of county workers were working in the area around Monroe, Washington, when they discovered a male body under a bridge. Police did not want to say right away that it was Jay, but they did stop the search for Jay once the body was found. So this leads us to believe that they knew it was Jay. They just didn't want to officially say that until they had positive ID. The body had been beaten and strangled. Along with the body, they found more zip ties. This location was located 36 miles northeast of Seattle, Washington, and 60 miles south of where Tanya's body was found. Say the killer picked the kids up in Seattle and went straight up to Billingham. Jay would have been dropped off first, then it would have been Tanya, then the van. This whole trip from point A to point B, if they were picked up in Seattle, would be a little over 100 miles. Police had some theories. The strongest theory they believed was that Jay and Tanya had picked up a hitchhiker, and that hitchhiker actually turned out to be someone dangerous and turned on them. They even believed it could have possibly been a serial killer that was passing through the area. Problem was, they had no real evidence. All they had was their bodies, some zip ties, and their van. There was no real other evidence. The families put together a $50,000 reward, but unfortunately that brought in some leads, but nothing that led anywhere. In December, after the bodies were found, the family started to get some letters from the supposed killer. Many, many, many years later, it was determined that the letter writer had actually not been the killer. It was someone who was just kind of seeking attention and trying to input themselves in the investigation. It was a homeless man. It had been so long, there was no charges that could be brought against that person. So the case became a cold case. This cold case eventually landed on the desk of cold case investigator Jim Scharf back in 1995. Detective Scharf wasn't going to give up on the case. He said over the years they had had over 200 names that 
had been put in a file of possible people of interest, but none of them ever went anywhere. So these really weren't ever made public. It was just small leads. There had been DNA found on Tanya and in her pants from the van. So in the early 2000s, DNA was entered into CODIS. This DNA was labeled as individual A for this case, but there were no hits, unfortunately. That just meant that he hadn't committed any other major crimes and been caught. However, advances in technology and DNA, of course, there was hope for this case. It was just waiting for the time for the test to be done. Around 2015, a woman by the name of Chelsea Rusted started doing what a lot of people have been doing lately, and that's researching their family trees. She took one of those DNA tests and uploaded it to a website called GEDmatch. This was a big turning point in the case, though no one knew it yet. As many of you know, in 2018, can't believe it's been that long ago, the Golden State Killer was arrested after over 40 years based on DNA, DNA that had been uploaded to GEDmatch. Detectives use something called genetic genealogy. Basically, an easy way to explain this is they take DNA of the suspect and they build a family tree around that so then they can find connections and possibly narrow it down to that individual suspect. Then they have to get that person's DNA to compare it to whatever the evidence is. So that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Detective Scharf heard about this right after it happened. He reached out to Parabon Nanolabs. Parabon is like the leading company that's doing this. They're making great work, but they agreed to take a look at the DNA from Tanya and Jay's case. They uploaded the DNA from Tanya's body and her pants, and actually within a few hours, yes, I said hours, a genetic genealogist connected individual A's DNA to two people that were in GEDmatch. They were both second cousins. They were on different sides of the family, so those two people had no real relation, but they were both related to individual A. One of those people was Chelsea Rusted from 2015. The other person wants to be anonymous, but they did help detectives answer some questions about their family tree. Chelsea helped the detectives as well. She really didn't have any information on the individual A because she believed this person was estranged from their family. She had actually befriended his siblings on Facebook, but individual A basically had no digital fingerprint that she could find and she never really thought too much of it. She didn't care. Well, that suspect's name was William Earl Talbot II, a name that detectives had never heard of. It had never crossed their paths. They didn't hear it until Parabon told them. Just because Parabon found this person, detectives still needed his specific DNA to match it to the evidence they had. So in order to do this, they started telling him. They followed him, hoping that he would leave his DNA behind, maybe on a straw, a cup, a fork, something. And they finally got a break. William was a truck driver at the time, and he stopped at a red light. When he stopped there, he opened his door and then he shut it again shortly after and left on a green light. Dude was littering. He threw out a paper cup, but that paper cup had his DNA on it. The detectives that were tailing him immediately went to the crime lab. And on May 9th of 2018, the lab positively matched William's DNA from that cup to the DNA on Tanya and her pants. Less than 10 days later, on May 17th of 2018, detectives arrested William Earl Talbot II on two counts of aggravated murder. He, of course, pled not guilty to these charges. The ultimate test for this trial was going to be whether the defense fought the genetic genealogy. This was a new tool. It had never been used in a trial before. Yes, the Golden State Killer had been arrested because of it, but he hadn't been to trial yet. William's trial was the first trial that was going to be using this. But surprisingly, the defense did not argue it. They did not argue it because part of their defense was that William did have sex with Tanya, 
but that it was consensual and someone else completely unrelated murdered her. Not likely, of course, but that was his defense. They did not believe that there was anything that could link William to the murders themselves or the crime scenes. The prosecution did not believe this. One, William had been a delivery driver around the time that Tanya and Jay were murdered. He had actually just been fired shortly before, but one of the places that he delivered to was where they were headed or right next to where they were headed to pick up those furnace parts for Jay's dad. So prosecution theorized that maybe he was driving around the area plotting some sort of revenge when he ran into the couple in their van asleep. Secondly, he lived just seven miles from where Jay's body was found. The other thing was the zip ties from all the crime scenes had actually had a mixture of DNA on them. During the trial, they were able to separate and prove that William's DNA was one of the DNAs on there, but they chose not to bring this up at trial. They felt like it was probably too late to add it to their defense. Thankfully, they did not need it, though, because on June 28th, 2019, the jury came back with a verdict guilty. And in July of 2019, William Earl Talbot II was sentenced to two life terms without the chance of parole. But the story did not end here. Of course, William's defense team started the appeals process. And on December 6th of 2021, the Washington State Court of Appeals overturned his conviction, stating jury bias. Well, immediately, of course, the Snohomish County prosecution appealed this ruling to the state's highest court. Apparently, one of the jurors during the jury selection process had expressed doubts of her ability to be impartial. This was going on during jury selection. So in a nine to zero decision, the Court of Appeals reinstated the original conviction because they said the defense had the chance to dismiss this juror before the trial and they chose not to. So there was no grounds to be contesting it now when they had the option to not use that juror to begin with. To this day, Mr. Talbot is still trying to appeal on grounds of other things. If anything comes up, I will update you. This is probably going to be going on for quite some time because it was a fairly new decision. To this day, he maintains his innocence. All right, everyone, that's all for today's case. If you don't already, please follow, like, subscribe, depending on where you get your podcast. If you haven't already, please leave a five-star review as it really does help the podcast grow. If you have a case you want me to cover, please email me at beforeamberpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us across all social media at beforeamberpod. We will be back in two weeks to remember someone else. Until next time, later. All sources are listed in our show notes, but some of those sources include newspapers.com, 48 hours, season 34, episode 9, A Killer in the Family Tree, cbsnews.com, and jedmatch.com. Thanks again.